turn to the scriptures once again and to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We'll be reading verses 1 to 20, and our text will be the last five verses. Here God's word is found in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes." And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And the words of our text, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Surely I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So far the reading of God's word. Beloved in the Lord, our God is a God of peace, and he desires peace in the community of Christ. Colossians 3 verse 15 says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. God the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts so that we might demonstrate this peace to one another. At the same time, we recognize the hard reality of sin, 
sin in the congregation of God. In fact, in order to have the peace of God, real peace, we must be on guard against sin in the community of God. Sin is that first disturbance, that first attack against the peace of God. Our sin separates us from God and from one another. If an individual allows sin to flourish in his life, without a constant war against that sin, without a constant seeking of God in repentance, God warns that there remains no sacrifice for sin. That's from the book of Hebrews. That is why, for the sake of God's peace, we're called to confront our brother or sister with his or her sin. Unfortunately, this, this call to confront our brother or sister often gets one of two responses. On the one hand, we hear Matthew 18, and, and we justify endless, endless confrontations with, well, it's Matthew 18. The problem with this type of confrontation is it's too often based on envy and anger. It creates war, not peace. James 4 verse 1 speaks of this type of confrontation. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Or we seek to keep a false peace. We neglect our duty to our brother and sister out of a desire to keep unity and to keep peace. The problem is that unity and peace become a false peace, a false unity, an unstable peace. God calls out the church of Thyatira in Revelation for such a false peace, where he warns her for tolerating that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. So on the one hand, we can have constant conflict that is destructive to peace. On the other hand, we can have a false peace. And of course, we have the extreme here, the woman Jezebel. I bring you the word of the Lord under the theme, seek the good of your brother or sister through confrontation. First, we're going to look at when to confront. Second, we're going to look at mediating confrontation. And finally, accountability for confrontation. The word of the Lord is clear. There is a time in which you are called to confront your brother. We should take the when he sins against you quite generally. There is a possibility we may need to confront our brother or sister for any sin they commit. The occasion for such a confrontation will likely happen when our brother or sister sins in such a way that affects us. But we should not immediately think that just because a brother sins against us in some way that we have to confront him. Before you step out your door in order to confront your brother or sister, you should be aware of other options. 
You see, we do all things remembering the great grace that our Lord has given us. How he poured out his blood for our sake. How he covered all our sins and removed them as far as east is from west. God covers sins that we don't even realize. Sins that we have not repented of because we are not aware of them or have forgotten them. This is truly a humbling reality. Such a realization should should teach us to approach our God and one another in the humility, that childlike humility that God calls us to in the first part of chapter 18. The God who covers our sin wants us to reflect that in our own lives and in the way we forgive others. We have a call to Overlook offenses all through the scriptures. We have Proverbs 19.11. We read that. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 calls us to the same attitude. Above all... This is after a whole bunch of instructions about how to live before God. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, for love covers a multitude of sins. So when do we refrain from confronting our brother or sister? First of all, when we know we are not loving one another earnestly. In other words, when we confront confront him out of anger or out of envy, out of a desire to get even, to stand for our rights. Now, we may certainly stand for our rights. There's no command in Scripture that you just let people walk all over you. But we do so. The important thing is that we do so out of a desire for our brother's good. Perhaps our brother is weak in his understanding. Perhaps he lacks knowledge or wisdom. Perhaps he's not even fully aware of how he has sinned. There's also the problem of time. Is he ready to be confronted? Are you ready to confront? Patience and timing may allow your brother to soften so that your confrontation will not blow up in your face. You see, we need to remember again, before God, we're all like this. It's only through Christ that we have the wisdom of God, that we grow in the knowledge of sin. Always ask the question, is this for my brother's good that I am doing this? There's also a question of time for you. Examine yourself. Do you have hurt, pride, and anger that should be removed before you confront your brother? Are you ready to confront? Remember that it's only after Jesus has called his disciples to humility. After he's warned them about becoming a stumbling block. Only then does he call them to confront their brother when he sins. God also doesn't want us to ignore the sin of our brother in such a way that we create a false peace, in such a way that we encourage brothers to live as hypocrites before the Lord. 
When we begin our practice of obeying Christ by seeking to imitate our God and overlooking offenses, Christ, through word and spirit, will teach us how best to approach our brother and confront him for his sin. Again, we aren't doing it for our sake. We're doing it for the sake of our brother, for the sake of the congregation of Christ. One of the most important qualifications to this command is the identity in which we approach our brother. We approach as a brother in Christ, as an equal before God. He is a brother. We've both been washed, justified, sanctified by the cross of Christ. Here the rest of Matthew 18 is helpful again. We do so as the shepherd searching for the lost sheep. We do so out of a desire that he might not remain in his sin. There's that command earlier in Matthew 18, warning that we do not lead little ones into sin. We can disobey Jesus' command either by aggravating our brother or by leaving him in his sin. Our desire, our goal in approaching our brother is that we may gain a brother. Jesus teaches us in the very words he uses in Matthew that our confrontation is for the sake of our brother, that we may gain a brother. It's helpful also to remind ourselves of the necessity of mutual encouragement for the health of the church. Confronting our brother can be an opportunity to strengthen our relationship with our brother and strengthen the church of God. We should not avoid conflict. It's not merely something to be avoided. Rather, it's a means that God uses to teach us to grow in love with one another. Again, keep in mind that this is, this is for your brother. And beyond that, this is, this is for the sake of the congregation of Christ. The wise man welcomes exhortation and advice. Will confrontation help your brother? Your pain in confronting may be for the gain of your brother. Go through Paul's letters and number the times that he calls us to seek unity and peace in God. And that for a real unity, for a real peace, that can only be done through mutual encouragement and growth. Our Lord says, do it. Confront your brother with his sin against you. That means we need to be on guard. That means we keep short accounts. By short accounts, I mean we work to solve problems quickly. That means when we sin, we quickly seek out forgiveness. That means when others sin against us, keeping in mind everything that has been said already, we're quick to look for reconciliation. If we do so, we will rarely see the necessity for the involvement of the church at an institutional level in church discipline. Particularly if we do so, humbly realizing what a great salvation God has given to me and humbly desiring the good of my brother, desiring real reconciliation that the peace of God may dwell in my heart and his heart. 
but our brother may not listen. Despite the fact that we have approached him in humility, that we have sincerely sought his well-being, he may be unwilling to be reconciled. If that is true, then Christ calls us to seek the help of two or three witnesses. That brings us to our second point, mediating confrontation. Now, we should not imagine here that Christ is teaching us that we visit our brother once, and then right away we call in two or three others. Christ is giving an outline of how we are to act, not a simplistic set of instructions. While there is hope that we can reach reconciliation privately, we should seek friendship with our brother. Only when he stubbornly refuses to recognize his sin should we call others to participate in our conflict. There are good reasons not to go too quickly to the step outlined in verse 16 of our text. We need to ask ourselves some questions. Have we come to our brother in a proper manner? Do you still have a a log in your own eye as you approach your brother about his sin? Examine yourself. Examine your motives. If you recognize anything wrong in your approach, make sure you admit that to your brother. Ultimately, this is why Christ calls you to bring in two or three others. These not only take an account of what your brother has done, but they also take into account what you have done. They are there, they are there to weigh the merit of your case as well. If you are ever in such a situation, it's it's important to let the brother you confront know this. This is not merely for him, but it's to keep you accountable as well. Remember the warning of God. Our flesh is prone to sin. Our heart inclines toward all evil. We should not be quick to trust ourselves and our own reasoning. This is why the words of Christ here are so wise. We need to keep our own hearts accountable as well. That's why we should seek to establish our case on the witness of two or three brothers. It's highly important to understand that we continue to act out of a desire to show forgiveness the forgiveness of God. That's the whole point. We aren't setting a mob on our brother. In fact, we're putting our own desires and our own follies before the light of two or three witnesses. This is, again, all done in the hope that we will reach reconciliation and peace. And there's also an implicit warning here about talking about about such cases. All that is commanded so far is to be done in private for the sake of the good name of the brother. We do all this seeking the good of our brother. That means that whatever the sin he has done, we don't defame him or seek to discredit him. Don't gossip first and then seek reconciliation. And neither, once again, Should we shy away from exercising our call to confront one another in this way? This may be another point where we are tempted to leave off our discussions, forget about his sin in a way that is inappropriate. And here's the thing. God wants real reconciliation. 
Again, there's a middle ground here. We should always be motivated by a desire for justice and a heart full of mercy. The call is to a reflection of the character of God. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. This is your calling as you seek true peace with your brother. This is your calling if you are called to listen to the complaint of one brother against another. Remember that calling from Deuteronomy 1, do not show partiality. Here we see that applied to all individuals in the church of God. We should be a people known for how reasonable we are in our dealings with one another. Our world seeks to have that impartiality without God's law. And the fact is, that's impossible. They can have something of that, but in the end they fail. And that's because they don't have the forgiveness of Christ, the forgiveness that can cover the sin of the one who confronts, the one who is confronted, and the one who comes and mediates between the two. Only in Christ, having sought Christ's covering in his love, can we truly put aside our own desires and seek the partiality of the Spirit. Brings us to our third point, accountability for confrontation. Jesus adds, perhaps your brother will still not hear you. He stubbornly refuses to repent of his sin against you. Then finally you may bring it to the church. Your rupture with your brother has become public. Notice the mercy and the love here shown toward the sinning brother. Jesus is demonstrating what it means to search and search for the lost sheep. He is showing what it means to die for your brother. At no point is the one who confronts holding his rights as more important than his brother's rights. In fact, at every turn, there's a possibility of reconciliation. Even before the conflict begins, there's an understanding that one might overlook a brother's sin. All is done with a view to our brothers and sisters' welfare in the Lord. The individual goes to his brother in order that he might gain his brother. The two or three witnesses are there for the sake of the one who is confronted, not for the one who confronts. They come to see that the complaint is just. And it's the same with the church. The church holds the brother accountable so that he may be reconciled. And if he does not listen to the church, we hold the brother as a Gentile and a tax collector. It may not immediately seem so, but even then the grace of God is apparent. The Gentile and the tax collector may still repent. They may still turn to God and seek his face if they recognize their sin. The remaining words of Christ in verses 18 through 20 are meant to encourage the church in their exercise of church discipline. Exercising judgment in this way is no easy thing. Everyone, everybody has an opinion about the best way to exercise church discipline. Everybody has their own opinions about a given case. But Christ promises his 
presence here in these last couple verses. He promises the church wisdom in exercising judgment over who belongs to the church of Christ and who does not. He has given them the keys, the keys which are the preaching of the gospel and church discipline. The announcement that Christ forgives and the announcement that those who practice hypocrisy, who stubbornly continue in their sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the church needs this encouragement. If anything has been mangled in the history of the church from the time of Moses till today, it's the judgment that has been given to the church. People have been excommunicated from the church for the sake of self-aggrandizement, for the sake of greed, for the sake of envy. People have been deeply hurt by the church's unjust treatment of them. It's tempting to say that the church has lost any right to exercise church discipline. But we must say that when church discipline is done rightly, out of love, and for the sake of the sinner, it's done justly. Why? Because of Christ. Christ has given us sacrifice for the failures of the church as well. And Christ uses our flawed discipline for the advance of his church. That's why God commends patient with the failures of those who are in authority. Relying on Christ's covering, recognizing and seeking the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we can go forward humbly confronting our brothers with their sin and encouraging them in good, in good works. Knowing Christ's call and the promise of his presence, the fact that he will be there with them, the church can do so boldly. Hear then this exhortation. Don't seek out confrontation. As Paul says, if at all possible, live at peace with all men. Be patient with the weaknesses of your brothers and sisters. At the same time, don't avoid confrontation. Each one of us has either, either leans toward seeking out confrontation or completely avoiding it. We must be careful. God wants a, ch God wants a church that is urged on to greater and greater good works, leaving behind all that is evil. Remember also, preach the gospel to yourself. You have been called out of darkness into a marvelous light. Knowing that will give you the right attitude in approaching your brother. God is patient with your weaknesses. God has forgiven you an infinite debt. Show that attitude of love and forgiveness in your life as well. All glory be to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's sing in response from Psalm 101, verses 1, 2, 5, and 6.